Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. And I thank you, God, for loving us, for rescuing us. Um, For those who just need encouragement today, whose hearts are heavy, I pray that you would encourage them right now, that they would be reminded of your great love for them, that even in this moment they might experience their theology, the theology behind those words that we We love you because you first loved us. Encourage heavy hearts who are here today. God, we think of the persecuted church for Leah Sherabu, who's being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria, for Pastor Yusuf, who is imprisoned in Iran, for Pastor John and Pastor Wang, who are imprisoned in China, for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution this week in Algeria and in Nigeria. Lord, we remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them. Help them, God. Lord, for our leaders, for our president, vice president, judges, justices, congressmen, senators, give them wisdom, God. Help them to make good decisions, wise decisions. Lord, for our our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those who are serving abroad, who are in harm's way, we pray for their protection and their safety and that, Lord, you would save those of them who don't know you, that you would bring about an awakening in the lives of those who are not walking with you. And for our enemies, we pray that you would confuse and frustrate their plans and that they too would come to know you in this life, Lord. And today, today we want to hear from you. So God, I pray that you would protect me from error, from making mistakes, that I would say only what you want me to say, nothing more, nothing less. If there is a word you have for me to give to someone today that I have have planned on saying, I pray, Lord, for such a word. We want to hear from you, Lord. Help us, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Esther. This is part two of our journey through the book of Esther, and we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. It says, after these things, and it doesn't specify how much time has passed since the events in chapter 1. The events in chapter 1 occur in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. As I mentioned last week in the introduction to Esther, this King Ahasuerus is better known by his Greek name Xerxes, as mentioned in the story of the 300 Spartans and their Greek allies holding off the million-man Persian army at the pass at Thermopylae. Same guy. 
But the events in chapter 1 take place in the third year of his reign. The events in chapter 2, verse 16, take place in the seventh year of his reign. So there's somehow a four-year gap between chapter 1 and 2.16. Where does chapter 2, 1 fall into? Either at the beginning of that four-year gap or the ending? We don't know. But, but that's essentially the setting. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. His anger... Let's calm down a little bit. He was, he was pretty upset last week in chapter 1. In chapter 1, they're having a massive party. Herodotus, the Greek historian, recalls that as many as 15,000 guests sometimes would show up to these parties. And he calls for Vashti to come and see him, to show off, pray around her beauty. And she said no. And we talked a little bit about this specific event, and I uh, recounted when I was a child reading through my illustrated Bible with my mom about this story. It just seemed strange that she would say no, kind of that she was acting a little bratty. But as we discussed more in depth last week, I think it was more than just that. Because if you're familiar with the story of Esther, you know that to show up unannounced to see the king and he's not ready for you to see him, could potentially result in you losing your life. And so you would think that the inverse would be true as well. That if you don't show up when he's called for you, you're potentially risking your life. And I think that very well is the case, which I think you need a better argument than, well, she just wasn't in the mood. Maybe she was bratty for all we know. But One of the things that as I was reading the New American Commentary that really I think stood out is the fact that many Jewish rabbis as well as modern day commentators have suggested, and I think it's probably the most probable theory, is that when he calls for her to come wearing her royal crown, it is he is calling for her to come wearing nothing but her royal crown, and it is for her self-respect and for her dignity that she refuses, that she would potentially risk her life. And much of this also is hinted at in the Targum. The Targum would be like the Message Bible today. It is a a kind of a loose interpretation, translation of the Hebrew Bible in Aramaic that includes some other events in Esther that isn't recorded in our Bible. And so he was furious. She openly defied him. He's got to do something about that. And we threw around in small group, I think on Wednesday night, like, well, what... What would have been appropriate if, if this actually did happen, the way I'm suggesting it, I think it happened, what would have been appropriate? And I think, I think from his point of view, from Ahasuerus, the king, I think that the, the real leader move would have been to say, you know what, guys, uh, <laughs> had a little bit too much to drink at the party, and, uh, you know, I put Queen Vashti in a really difficult position. I, I, I made a request of her that I really, at the end of the day, I shouldn't have made. And so that's on me, and I'm just, you know, I'm going to take this, right? Whether you're the king of Persia or a pastor, sometimes you put your foot in your mouth and you say things that you wish you could take back. I think that would have been the real leader move in that story. But of course, as we saw in the first eight verses of chapter one, what really characterizes King Ahasuerus is his pride. This is a man who is not self-made. This is a man who has inherited the largest empire the world has ever known. And so he can't admit that maybe he shouldn't have made the request of her. And the easy way out to save face is, well, let's fire her and find someone else. So that's where we're picking up today in chapter 2, verse 1. 
He's calmed down. He's not so angry that she's openly defied him. And he's remembered Vashti. In fact, I think you could say she's remembered Vashti. He may have even felt a little sorry about how everything went down. Maybe even that he missed her, that he desired to have her back, but he's made this irrevocable decree, or as we might say, that ship has sailed. And at least in part of its sailing is providential to make way for the new queen that must come. And so, my guess, Ahasuerus, thinking back, after cooler minds have now prevailed, maybe he misses her, he's feeling a little sad, right? kind of feel sad when you have a breakup. It happens. And so the leaders in his kingdom, they want to help him take his mind off of it. And what better way to help him take his mind off of it than introduce him to a bunch of young, beautiful ladies. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 2, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the Beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. That made him feel better, right? Listen, I know you miss Vashti. I'll introduce you to a lot more Vashtis. Vashti's 2.0. And that's... that's Really, that's, that's kind of on the surface. This almost sounds like a little bit of a, a beauty contest. I remember when uh, I was first getting to know Diana. I was uh, doing my best to spit my game. True story. I still try to spit my game with her. I'd be like, what are you doing here? Miss America pageant in town? And, and so on the surface, that's kind of what this, what this feels like. It, it kind of feels like this almost this beauty competition, this Miss America, Miss World competition. But truthfully, this wasn't really a very happy assignment for most of the women involved. They were uprooted from their communities. They were confined to the king's harem. And it would, for most of them, be a move that would result in perpetual widowhood really was not cool at all. But we have a new character who shows up. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish. So they're tracing this new character, Mordecai, his, uh, his ancestry. Father, grandfathers, and we learn that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And one of his great-grandfathers... They had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This would have been at least over a hundred years earlier. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, and her her name means star, the daughter of his uncle. Quick pause here. I don't know if this is true for you guys. I had always learned that Mordecai was Esther's uncle. That was, that was their relationship dynamic. And then I'm reading this, and I'm like, wait a second here. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So his uncle, and then his daughter. So Mordecai's uncle, his daughter, that's his cousin. And he's bringing her up as his own. 
because she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So we learn that Mordecai has adopted Esther, her parents, gone. And we learn that she is truly beautiful. Uh, She was lovely in both form and feature. And I think just in and of itself, that statement right there, it serves as a reminder, one that we take for granted, that beauty is a gift from God. Not a spiritual gift, but beauty is a gift from God. And I think that's important to remember because what we do with God's gifts matter. And, and, and like everything given by God, every gift, it can and should be used by God for his glory and the good of his people. This is going to be really significant and important throughout this story. God has gifted some of you with beauty. And others... Maybe not to the same extent. And some of you have just wonderful personalities. Okay? Stay with me. I didn't expect you to react that way. I wasn't trying to be funny, but... But I think this is important. This is an important part of the story. Um, because people say, all right, well then, if Esther was given the gift of beauty, and if it's important that we use every gift, it can be used to the glory of God, um, and we should, then what are the practical implications there? And it's... Okay, I think one thing hasn't changed throughout the centuries that people are naturally attracted to people who are easy on their eyes or people that do have really amazing, beautiful personalities. We're just drawn to those types of people. We, we are. And you say, well, how do I know if I fit in one of those categories? Well, one, I don't know that you actually need to know because I think you knowing could potentially increase your risk for pride. Oh, well, I, man, I, I am just smoking hot or I am the... the the coolest person ever. I, I think you run the risk of that. So I don't know that you even need to know from a practical point. But it's this. Those people, Esther and others like her, they naturally have people come that will be drawn to them. Okay? They're people who are naturally drawn to Esther-like individuals. And she could easily just, as everyone comes and says, oh, Esther, you're so beautiful, or Esther, you're just the greatest, or Esther, blah, 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 blah. She could just eat that up, Right? And she has the potential to just live for the applause. She could just enjoy that, right? The satisfaction it brings when people verbally affirm you. Every gift that God gives to us is from God and should be used for His glory and the aid of His people. Something to keep in the back of your mind as this story develops I think we have two choices when it comes to the gifts that God gives us. And the gifts that God gives us, sometimes as Christians we become just consumers of them instead of looking to the needs of others. Right? I'm saying that, right? If you're familiar with the story, you're seeing how that fits in and why it makes sense. I'm saying these things. But he's raising Esther, and then she is, with all these other girls, taken. She is taken. The commentators 
speculate on how many girls would have been there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says as many as 400 girls would have been present. Other commentators suggest that if it was year 3 in chapter 1 and year 7 in chapter 2, 16, four years had elapsed, that if King Ahasuerus had a different girl every single night over the course of four years, it could be well over 1,400 girls. So somewhere in the span, most likely, of 400 to 1,400 girls are taken, along with Esther. And we're not told whether or not they were given a choice. And we can assume they probably were not given a choice. But for most of these girls, it wasn't a happy experience at all. And no doubt Esther wasn't a happy experience for her either. Imagine she may have had thoughts such as, this isn't what I want. This isn't the the situation I signed up for. You know, that happens to Christians sometimes. We, we find ourselves experiencing circumstances or things not necessarily going the way that we would want them to go in our own lives. We experience things that we would just honestly prefer not to experience, that we could do without, which makes Esther all the greater example in this story. Because when we find ourselves in situations that are less than ideal, we have an opportunity to trust God and to seek opportunity to do good a good that may not even be obvious to us, a a good that might be hidden in our immediate sight. When we find ourselves in less than ideal situations, we think, what good could come out of this at all? These girls are being taken. They don't have a choice. You feel that? You maybe feel just an ounce of what they're going through. Which makes Esther and her story all the more remarkable. This is more than just having a good attitude, guys. Because otherwise I could just package this into some secular story like a a football coach, you know, trying to motivate his team. And they just, you know, have a good attitude. But we're down by a hundred, coach. Have a good attitude, right? It's more than just that. It's more than just having a good attitude to see the good, to living courageously and boldly. Why? Because I know the one who holds my story in his hands. That even when we find ourselves in less than ideal situations, the king is still on his throne in those moments. And if you can trust him with your salvation, then doesn't it stand to reason you could trust him with something much smaller? like the, I don't know, the, the difficult circumstance that you're in right now? You, you, if you can trust him with your salvation, does it not stand a reason that you, you can also trust him with whatever difficult situation you might be dealing with or going through that's less than ideal? No, this is much more than having a good attitude. This is, I am trusting God because he is the one ultimately that holds my story, that holds my life in his hands. This is not a pleasant experience for these girls, guys. They are ripped from their homes. And yet, verse 9, And the young woman Esther 
pleased him. Now, him is not King Ahasuerus. Him is the one in whose custody she's in, the chief eunuch, Haggai. She has pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. She's pleased him. That's important. As one commentator notes, uh, to please, to be good, is the oil in the wheels of the Persian bureaucracy. There is a note of strong irony here because she's pleasing him, not the king, the eunuch. That, that her beauty is so overpowering even to the eunuch that she is winning his favor. And as I mentioned last week in this sermon, God is not mentioned at all in the story of Esther, not even once. And yet we see such strong themes of God throughout the story, including embedded in the very word that says she won his favor. Because the word favor is from the Hebrew word hesed or hesed. This covenant term that refers to this covenant loyalty, this covenant Kindness, this picture, right? That we recall God's covenant to his own people, even though they're abroad in a foreign land. Well, verse 10 says this, Esther, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We wonder maybe at first why Mordecai insisted on her concealing her identity. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the king should have looked for a queen among the leading Persian families, and so maybe Esther had no chance of becoming queen had she disclosed her nationality. And yet, then again, ambition doesn't ever seem to be a motivating factor for her cousin Mordecai. So why? He, he may have had the knowledge that her identity would prove dangerous to her. Or perhaps anti-Semitism already existed. But whatever the reason was, she doesn't disclose her identity. And he is able, in verse 11, as we see, He's able to walk in front of the harem and learn how she is doing. And some people would say, there's no way that that would even be possible. But in a country so diversified as Persia, uh, such interaction would not have been totally altogether uncommon. So he's able to keep tabs on her, get updates about her life. This beauty pageant of sorts is a sad version of a beauty pageant. It's continuing, verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So this is how it worked out. It's really a sad story. It is almost as this feeling of this modern day 
sex slavery industry that we see here. There, there was no guarantee that the king would call upon these girls again. They'd go one night, they'd see the king, and then the next morning they're gone. And for some of them, he never calls, he never writes, it's just another notch on his belt. And thus they were confined to this perpetual widowhood. It's truly remarkable that one person could use other human beings just so flippantly to satisfy his own selfish desires. And that's really, I think, what we see here in chapter 2. If chapter 1 characterized Ahasuerus by his pride, chapter 2 characterizes him by his selfishness. He doesn't care. So these girls might come in, spend one night with him, and then they're locked away. They're essentially prisoners in the harem that they're in. He may call on them again, he may not. And when they would go in to see him, apparently they had the opportunity to take whatever they wanted. So some of the girls would think, well, there's 400 other girls I'm competing with, or perhaps as many as 1,400 other girls. This is probably the only time I'm ever going to see the king, so I'm at least going to get something out of this. So they would deck themselves out with pearls, with jewels of, of different sorts. They had that opportunity when they went in to dress however they wanted, and no doubt many of them took the liberty in doing that. And yet here with Esther, she deviates from this path. And we see great wisdom. When the turn came for Esther in verse 15, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. That's wisdom. Right? All the other girl, a lot of the other girls, they're, they're just taking dressing however they want to. Esther doesn't know King Ahasuerus. She potentially has had little to no interaction with him. And she goes and she asks the chief eunuch, listen, Haggai, you, you know him. You know what he likes. Give me advice. What should I do to give, to give myself the best possible chance here? That's wisdom. That's wisdom. I think, I think this is, man, I don't even have to like make an application. Just look at that. Like There's so much wisdom embedded in what she does here. I... Uh, that's why I tell people all the time, like, if you're a young single person and you desire a relationship, ask other people for advice on how to navigate because they can be kind of tricky. Esther does it. Nothing wrong with that. I think there's wisdom in that. After a small group on Wednesday night, I remember I was hanging out with two guys in my living room and one of the guys was just saying, listen, I need some advice here. Do you got any advice for me? And I was like, yeah, I do. I think there's wisdom in that to go in, to ask those sorts of questions from people who've already navigated that chapter in their life in fact if a girl came to me right one of my younger sisters in the faith and she said what do you think about this guy and this guy if the one guy i had had zero interaction little to no interaction with him but the other guy i had spent time getting to know him and he asked me questions and he he sought different advice I'd say, well, I don't really know that guy, but this guy, man, I, I've gotten to know this guy just in my interaction and him seeking wisdom. 
give my thumbs up on this guy. This guy, I can't, I can't give any type of recommendation. I tell people all the time, like, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong with saying, listen, I don't necessarily know how to navigate this chapter that my life is taking me right now. For Esther, it is in the context of a romantic relationship. So there it is, right? I tell people all the time, it's okay to ask. I think you should. I think the foolish person's like, no, I got it, don't worry. Well, I usually do in those situations. And when Esther was taken, verse 16, to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibbeth, in the seventh year of his reign, remember, chapter 1 was in the third year, now we're in the seventh year, four years have taken place, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Uh, This seventh year would have been about 479 B.C. Ashuerus. Xerxes would have already completed his campaign against the Greek city-states. But verse 17 is probably the most important verse to this entire story. Verse 17, The king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. The future of this story depends upon verse 17 happening. Verse 17 doesn't happen. We don't have the story. She has to win favor from the king. But there's 400 other girls that she's up against. Potentially as many as 1,400 plus girls that she's up against. Those aren't great odds. The future of this story depends on things going well, going right. And even though God is not mentioned in this story, the hand of God is understood to be the force behind this. How is it that out of 400 plus girls, she wins favor? King Ahasuerus could have chosen any one of the girls. Just chance? He was in the right mood, the right time? Haggai the eunuch gave great advice? Why does she receive favor when she's up against so many other girls? You can say, well, she had wisdom. She went and she asked Agai, the chief eunuch. Okay, but that doesn't make much of God. That makes much of Esther. So what is the ultimate determining factor? And I would say, God is the ultimate determining factor. Why does Esther find favor with the king? Esther finds favor with the king for the same reason that Joseph finds favor with Pharaoh. Esther finds favor with the king for the same reason that Daniel found favor with Nebuchadnezzar. That's it. That is it. There is a common element in all three of those stories, whether it's Joseph, Daniel, or Esther, and it was God who brought about these results. That, that should encourage you when you find yourself in a less than ideal situation and there's, I don't know, a one in 400 chance that 
has to happen in order for you to get out of that difficult situation. Remember, I said the, the reason you can live courageously and bold and trust God is you trust him with your salvation, after all. Why can't you trust him with the difficult situations of your life, especially when you know that he's the one that holds your life in his hands? I think of Proverbs 16.33. You guys know Proverbs 16.33? I love Proverbs 16.33. I bet you it's going to be up on the screen. Just as, There it is. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Your Bible might say the lot or the dice is cast, and it's every decision is from God. Think of a dice, right? Normally they have six sides. One, two, three, four, five, six. You roll it. One, two, three, four, five, six. And it just rests on one side or another. It's totally random, right? You say, why does Solomon use something like the dice? So random. Because his point is, is that random to God is not such a thing. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as random to God. This is not sheer chance that Esther gets chosen out of all these girls. God's hand is behind this. Just as even something as insignificant as the dice being rolled, God determines its every decision. Maybe it'll change your mind the next time you play Yahtzee. But it shouldn't surprise us. He, he's aware and he cares even if the bird falls from the sky. Oh yes, our God is very much in the details. It shouldn't surprise us all that Ahasuerus chooses Esther out of all the women. Or furthermore, you think of, say, Proverbs 21.1 to help illustrate and bring light to this and what's happening here. The king's heart. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord turns it wherever he will. So there's the picture, right? The king's heart is like a stream of water in God's hand. There's the imagery, right? King's heart, stream of water, God's hand. And what does God do? He turns it, right? Wherever he wills. I want you to go that way, right? I want you to come this way, right? He does that to the king's heart. And I'm so thankful that he does. And that I'm not living the Christian life based on the whims of maybe a tyrannical ruler to know that, especially when things are not going well in your life, to think, man, if only I could roll, you know, a six 400 times in a row, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, if Ahasuerus picks me, maybe things will be better. You you can trust him. You can trust him because the one who holds the king's heart in his hand and he turns it wherever he wills, he also holds your life in his hand. And that's good news. When you find yourselves in less than ideal situations like Esther, there is one reason and one reason alone. And it's the same reason that Joseph found favor with Pharaoh. It's the same reason that Daniel found favor with Nebuchadnezzar. It is the same reason that Esther finds favor and that she's chosen. You say, did King Ahasuerus Ahasuerus choose Esther or did God? And I would say, yes, Ahasuerus did choose Esther. Because that is exactly what God had ordained to take place. That's a big God that we can trust, folks. Oh, I hope that encourages your hearts when you find yourselves in difficult places. The story's not done yet. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now that's significant. King's gate, that's where you would conduct legal business operations. 
And so the fact that he's sitting at the king's gate supposes, at least some commentators, that after Esther had become queen, that she probably had Mordecai appointed to some type of magistrate or judge position within the vast hierarchy of the Persian Empire. And Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up. I love that verse. I really like that verse a lot. I don't know if you see it or the significance of it, but I'll shine some light on it. Um, She still has deference to her cousin Mordecai, who's raised her. She's still listening to him. She still shows him respect, gets his input. She appreciates and depends upon his wisdom. Even though you might say she's arrived, even though you might say she's kind of famous now, she's a big deal. She is the queen, after all, of the largest empire the world has ever known. And yet, she still shows deference to Mordecai, just as when she was younger. That can be hard sometimes. If Esther was exercising wisdom when she approached the king's eunuch asking for advice, she is exercising humility and wisdom here. Because the tendency is this. The tendency is, we go to a new chapter in our lives. I think the tendency is, I'm in a new chapter, so, well, I don't need help anymore. Right? After all, I'm a second semester freshman, so I got a good grip on things. Or I'm a sophomore, I'm a junior, I'm a senior, I'm a grad student. Or, well, I'm married now. Or I'm married and I have kids. Or I'm married and I have grandkids now. It's like people's noses just get higher and higher sometimes when they enter into those new chapters of their lives. Esther, you could say she's arrived. You could say she's a big deal. She doesn't need Mordecai anymore. I'm sure some of you have experienced moments where you've had friends and you walk with them through different chapters of their life and then for some reason or another, they get to one chapter and it's like, bye, peace, don't need you anymore. I think there's real humility and wisdom. If she was exercising wisdom before, she's exercising humility and wisdom. She's still showing deference to her cousin Mordecai. So then, verse 21 In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. These two guys came and made a threat on the king's life. The, the Targum tells us that Mordecai's discovery of the plot was ultimately God's design. Not by Mordecai's wisdom. He reports it to Esther. She tells it to the king. The men are apprehended. It turns out to be true. They are hanged. And the incident was recorded by the king's secretaries, which lines up with what Herodotus, the Greek historian, would tell us on the battlefield against the Greeks when he would see his commanders doing valiant things. He would say, hey, look at that colonel. Look at that major. Look at that you know, staff sergeant. Uh, please note that they just did some heroic, brave thing. Of course, as hard as I am on Ahasuerus... I- 
That's very understandable, right? You're not going to remember all these things, so you have people write them down, and then essentially they're forgotten. But the story ends, and this plot is foiled. The plot on his life. You wonder what would have happened had Mordecai not been there. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is consumed with power. And yet he's powerless at the end of chapter 2 as these events unfold. Despite the fact that he is the leader of the largest empire in the world, despite the fact that he has 14,000 men to make up his personal bodyguard, despite the fact that he is seemingly self-sufficient, he can't stop the threat on his own life apart from the divine aid in the form of Mordecai. He is truly powerless to save himself. And in this ending of chapter 2, it reminds us of another ending in which every single human being is ultimately like the king, is ultimately like Ahasuerus, powerless to save themselves from death apart from Christ. I don't know where you're at. You might feel pretty good about yourself and where things are at in life or very self-sufficient or riding high. And yet even the king of Persia can't save himself no more than any one of us can save ourselves. And history tells us that despite this plot being discovered, another plot will come and take its place and eventually claim his life. That's how he'll die. But not yet. Chapter 2 ends in in such a way that we are reminded that death is coming for us all. Even Ahasuerus cannot stop it. For it is the wisdom of the psalmist that teaches us to number our days and make sure that we are prepared to meet death when it comes, for it waits for no man. It comes whether or not you're ready for it to come. See, chapter 2 ends in in such a way in which it reminds us of our need for the divine king, the only one that has the power over death. Because in the end, every one of us is powerless to save ourselves apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what this ending reminds us of. That's what this ending points us to. Oh, that we... Oh, that we might all continue in the path of humility. We might continue in the path of wisdom that Esther reveals and shows us. That we might be strong to resist both selfishness and pride that seeks to dominate our lives. And so as the team comes, Lord, we pray that you would make us like Esther, trusting you as the one who holds both the king's heart and our very lives in your hand, Lord. Lord, strengthen our faith, especially in difficult times, to know and to be reminded of that you are the ultimate authority. You are the divine king. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.